2018, New York Magazine journalist Jessica Presler published a breaking story of Anna Delvey. The original article was called, Maybe She Had So Much Money She Just Lost Track of It. We'll leave a link in our show notes. It's the official stance of the re-engineered you. You should go back and read it if you have the chance. Jessica Pressler's coverage about the rise and fall of a young Russian girl who came from poverty to con her way into the inner circle of Manhattan's wealthy elite is something you shouldn't miss. Whereas the Netflix show Inventing Anna, well, if you've read the article, maybe you can miss this. This podcast doesn't exactly review streaming television, but for Anna Delvey, there's always room in our hearts to talk about a girl who went from trucker flannel to Alexander Wang leggings by lying her way to the top. So today we're not judging Shona Rhimes' Netflix show on the merits of its acting, directing, or writing. We just want to know one thing. Does inventing Anna reveal the core of Anna Delvey's scandal? The girl who saw the American class system from the outside and gamed it. Or is this just another hot take? Another based on reality TV drama that turns life into fast fashion? Or fast film. Or fast footage. I I had something for this. You're listening to The Re-Engineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment. And all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet and get to the facts. In 2016, Anna Delvey went looking for a $25 million loan to open an art club in New York. A high-class art club that served high-class drinks, catering to social elites. So Anna sent an email to a Silicon Valley publicist. Quote, If you think this is something you could help us with and have anyone in mind who would be a good culture fit for this project. I want to stress that phrase for a moment. A good cultural fit. Because it's important to note, Anna Delvey had a lot of high cultural friends in her pocket. As a wealthy German Harris, Anna had party with Macaulay Culkin, and listen to exclusive rap albums with Farmer Bro, Martin Screlly. When Anna went looking for a potential club locations, she reached out to Joel Cohen, the man who prosecuted the Wolf of Wall Street himself. If you followed the story at all, um, this kind of felt like she was building up social leverage. Like in the Netflix show, it there's a scene where she is applying for these loans. And they basically tell her, you don't know enough people. It's not that you don't have enough credentials or money in the bank or your portfolio doesn't look good. They actually tell her that she needs to have people behind her. They made it seem like this impossible. Okay. She wanted to open an art gallery. So the person who would be in charge of the real estate, the space said, I can't build a space for you unless I know what kind of artist it is. And then she went to the artist and the artist said, well, I can't really do art for you until I see what the space looks like. Right. So, so it's literally like they're doing this juggling thing that she can't win. They're mm-hmm. passing it off. I got it just to blow her off. But that's what it was. That isn't what it was. They're more interested in who they're going to work with than what they're going to work on. We kind of see that in, in film and television, too. Like people won't sign on to a project unless there's a director attached to it. Or unless like a certain writer is part of it. If Robert De Niro's star- starring in it, then everyone's more interested. Right, exactly. Did you... Okay, so while watching the movie, um, basically the, the whole premise of this episode, if I could throw our thesis out right away, um, what I got the sense of when I originally read about this is that Anna figured out how to make the noises to attract you know, the elite class of Americans. Um, there's this famous experiment when it comes to like bird songs where these scientists took these speakers and put them out in nature and they want to see if birds were more attracted to other birds or to the music that they make. And so they played bird songs through these speakers 
and it was like you know unnaturally attractive to the birds because they got the songs right every time obviously they're using like a, a synthesizer or something and so these these female birds would flock to the speaker and dance in front of it and they would like ignore all the real male birds in the forest and they would just hang out in front of the speaker that that speaker experiment that reminds me of anna delvey like thinking of the way she spoke to the wealthy elite getting them to come flock to her getting them interested making them dance in front of her she figured something out about the american class system and i don't think this show gets to that core now, I had a question about our original uh, episode because we we originally talked about Anna Delvey when we talked classism. Um, in that episode, because we recorded mid-COVID, pre-COVID, um, that was our episode 25, I believe, Anna Delvey and classism. Before that, I didn't get a sense that Americans uh, looked at our class system, that we, we didn't have a really good sort of um, it wasn't visible to us all the time. Now, after recording that episode, after seeing COVID, how visible is American classism to you now? <laughs> after studying it, it is in my daily thoughts, and I probably talk to one person a day about it. Okay. Every day. Okay. <laughs> That's how aware I am of and. uh there's some interesting stuff here. Can you go over this, Joe, about the difference, the lower, the working, the middle, the upper middle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you want to uh, ruin your restaurant dining experiences, and if you want to hate Twitter from now on, uh, continue listening for the next 30 seconds. Um, but when you look at the American class system, other countries have a, a visible obvious cast to it like c-a-s-t-e cast where they will say like in india there is the the you know uh people in poverty and then there's like a class or cast of people who have been generationally wealthy and then there's a business cast so like they have a it's not invisible it is set yeah, in stone because and, our country is so new yeah it hasn't as rooted as is known <laughs> right any country that has arranged marriages, that is that exists because they have a caste system. Americans like to pretend from the start that we don't have that. We don't even have classes in America, supposedly. We have everyone's equal. Everyone can grab their bootstraps and pull themselves up. And um, what is the, the old joke phrase that uh, Americans are not poor? They are temporarily embarrassed or something like that. Um, we don't have poor people. We have people who are, you know, have not yet pulled themselves up and are, you know, either either haven't or they're too lazy to pull themselves up out of poverty. Um, but we have found on the show and modern research has revealed it depends on what city you're living in and that this class system I'm about to talk about is more and more obvious if you are in cities with lower mobility. And if you ever want to look this up, there's an amazing map called the social mobility map or the poverty map. And it'll it'll show you if you're living in certain cities, I'm going to call out Jacksonville right now, um, you might as well be living in a hard set caste system for years. Growing up in Maine, I, I definitely saw this. I saw that the there was just the super wealthy and then there was middle class, and then there was a lot of poverty, like rural poverty. <laughs> right. And so there was, and some of the riches were in the rural areas too. The right. real deep generational property owning, farm owning, lobster boat owning, <laughs> you know, and then there was everybody else. I like that your uh, gentry class had lobster boats. Like it regionally, it depends on like where you are. But you'll have yeah different indicators of upper classism. That's a very main, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't know. I it, I may get wealthy, and that might be the first thing I get is a lobster boat. Um, so the way these classes work, if you're looking at it on a scale, you've got what Americans refer to as the lower class, the working class, the middle class, the upper middle class, and the upper class. That is how we identify ourselves, according to uh, Gallup polls. 
um, we we look at it as lower working, middle, upper middle, and upper. What this would be called in a social studies book would be something closer to the lower is more like the generationally poor, which is 10% of us, meaning we don't work because we can't afford to start working, where we're trapped in Appalachia, where we're not able to get a job. Um, the labor class, which would be the middle and upper middle, that's 65% of us. The gentry class would be more like people who don't work unless they have uh, land in an elite job, unless they have been you know, cycled through college by their parents at an Ivy League. The gentry class makes up about 23.5%. How much, what percentage of the labor class is college educated? Well, okay, on our classism episode, we talked about how an education is literally what lifts you out of or, or signifies that you are somebody of class. Um, I really wish I could remember it, but we had three metrics in that episode. Like it was like education, uh, opportunity, and something else. But, um, uh, education is middle and higher class. You can slip into lower class with a high education, but you usually don't stay there and you're not identified as such. And you probably partner up with somebody who's a higher class too. Exactly. Like if you're Often, a social worker or something, you're going to marry yeah. your partner with somebody. If you get a um, master's degree and become a teacher, you financially will slip into the lower class maybe but your bearing and your education will still identify you as the middle class or higher. Um, now, who, the people Anna targeted was almost entirely this last classification, which is the elite class. Um, we simply call it the upper class in America. We now start referring to them as the you know top 1%, top 2%. But that is effectively right, that the percentage-wise works out to be about 1.5%. These are people who don't work, that if they work, they are choosing to work. And when they do, they're picking prestige jobs and, you know, funds and, and charities. And we don't see these people on the bus. We don't see these people in our schools, in our restaurants. They're protected there. We probably haven't even put eyes on these unless they were on television. <laughs> right. And if they're on television, they've generally made a mistake. There's this um, famous sort of like realization that all these j magazines and journalists had when they were trying to track down um, the Purdue Pharma and the people, the, the family, the, the Sacklers who ran it, they could not find pictures of them. Like they weren't in the news. There weren't pictures of them. There weren't like LinkedIn and Instagram photos. They had real hard times tracking down the faces of people who hadn't like, you know, people who weren't already the faces of the company. I can just see that with some of the, like the Mars family or the, the opposite of what the Trumps would do. Yeah. Right? They, they want to let everyone know who they are and <laughs> let everyone know what their last name is and who they're related to. But some of these big old families, like the Ford family used to hide their children. They used to drive their children around in armored cars and stuff, afraid of a kidnapping. Absolutely. What, what, the, what the highest class, the elite class is good at is they pick faces to represent their organization slash family. The elite class does not appear in public to eventually have a guillotine roll up on their front lawn. What they do is they pick somebody from the gentry who has high professional standards and, and accolades, and they say, you represent us now. Like a body double. I think like a <laughs> body double. <laughs> a classism body double. Pays pretty good, but... Right. <laughs> Again, the good, good, get your head chopped off eventually. Yeah, that's what happened guy. in France. The the emigre during the, the French Revolution, they escaped, whereas the people that actually got guillotined were in the gentry class. They were, you know, public faces like Trump. Um, But it's, it's so weird. Okay, so when I, I... I'd like to know what your experience was with this, but when I went back and looked at our early episode about this... So much has changed in one year because of COVID. Like COVID supercharged the visibility of these class differences. Um, like just look at our, our TV shows that, that went, you know, gangbusters this year. We've got shows like um, Made starring uh, Margaret Qualley. And that's all about like 
the the struggles of a maid who is thrust into the lowest class and has to like you know fight her way back up uh, or we've got like succession or white lotus which is about you know the the labor class interacting with the elite class at a resort a squid game i mean that's a far more sci-fi fantasy version but it's like we went from no visibility to we all want to see it um off your list here is uh nomad land which was about the recession about the working class person who worked their whole life and was a great person and had a house and everything and then industry sucked the town dry and she ended up being homeless and it's kind of the sign of what what the labor class in this country has waiting for them at the end of the day when they're no longer physically able and a use for them they're cast away right <laughs> i kind of so i i i obviously don't want to make every episode about classism we do dip into it quite a bit more and more out of i think necessity because we have to address you know anytime we do an episode about the medical system or or you know air and fatigue or something we have to address the elephant in the room which is systems put in place to you know profit but Joe was Anna, pissed mad about this whole social thing we first I, found out about it. <laughs> he was mad. He's always an angry person, but this bothered him more. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he was sharpening up his blades for us to go find some billionaires. But we don't have the resources to actually get to them. I think you can hear me in our Anna Delvey episode originally. You can hear me constructing a guillotine in the background. There's clinking sounds, and it's because I'm knocking a guillotine together. Um. It's hard to get into Anna Delvey without directly looking at classism. But ironically, Shonda Rhimes tried, it seems. <laughs> she tried to get all about Anna Delvey without really looking too closely at classism. Um, but that is just my take. Like, we're we're going to kind of walk through uh, what Anna Delvey did right as a show and, and sort of what it did and didn't say. Um... So I guess one of my other big questions is how much now that shows are coming out about it, do you see people reacting to classism? Do you think it's more visible than it used to be? I think I think it is because social media is polarizing just excess of stuff. It, it's the birthday parties, the 16-year-olds, $100,000 birthday parties on the low end. And people who are stretching to have things if they can't have everything that that person has just one thing that those people have right whether it's a vacation or a handbag or eating at a certain restaurant not only do they have to do that but they have to post and and brag and get oh. full credit for the whole thing like the the twitter we covered that one time we talked about the twitter of the silver super wealthy you know heirs and heiresses yeah, kids with um, the leopard in the front seat with a gold exactly. Chain <laughs> I was thinking about the the big leopards and things laying on top of sports cars. There's your thoughts. <laughs> I used to think of classism almost like a literal rags to riches story. That all of the people in my um, sort of fictionalized fantasy version of America like John Rockefeller went from the poorest of the poor and then by the end of their journey they had built an empire and they had bootstrapped their way up and they had you know so much money like I, I literally viewed it like a fantasy tale or a one of the seven basic plots is a rags to riches tale wasn't that everybody's dream to take care of their family for generationally yeah so and not it, just just your immediate kids and stuff but everybody and it seems if you are wealthy or a star, you can't say that you went from the middle to the top. You always have to make up a reason why you were at the bottom. Like you have to you have to have the full journey, basically, or your narrative doesn't work. That's that's kind of what Shonda Rhimes does here. Like she talks about okay, so not to drag us on track sharply, but when Anna Delvey gets to her montage about like um, how she went through the classes. It really does make it seem like this fantasy rags to riches. Like it montages her as, you know, sitting with her trucker gangster father 
who gives her a Diet Coke, which they'd only had once a year because they were mega poor in Russia. And, you know, he, he cracks this Diet Coke for her and pours it and, and is like, this is us every day now, basically. And then it shows her in boarding school, not just blending in with the high class girls, but studying French magazines so she could outdo them. And it kind of nails her awareness of classes or it nails her awareness of the classes and where the dividing lines are. But that's about as far as it goes, I think. Key phrase there, Joe, studying. She started studying this stuff from a very, very young person. Now, um, I have a friend, he's multiple friends who are professional athletes, and he told me this, and this kind of sits. He says, when you hang out with professional athletes, they have a clean bling to them that normal people don't have. Their clothes, their cars, there's not a hair out of place. Sharpness, yeah. It's just, yeah, they're just bright. They're just blingy. So if you grew up as an elite in a one percenter, one and a half percent, whatever, and you had your whole life that, your uncles, your aunts, everyone around you, right? You're in school with a bunch of them too. Wouldn't you spot someone who couldn't fit in right away? You would think so. I mean, even micro-wise, you'd say, okay. It, she studied so deep, she became such an expert, <laughs> and she had to have practiced somewhere. Where did she practice? In this third world kind of, you know, poor life. Right. Well, it's like the ultimate performance of studying <laughs> and then performing live. I mean, it's got to be impressed by that. We have had many episodes where we've talked about the scientific tells that you are from a, a lower social class. We've talked about how, you know, your your resting face, you know, the muscles underneath your skin will sit differently depending on how much cortisol you've had, stress you've had in your life. You will have different, like your your eye will have different types of bags. You will have different types of, you know, your voice. Um, we One of my favorite studies is when we got into the Stanford study um, about how your, you know, inflection your tone your pace they all change when you are from a higher class anna found so many clever cover-ups and veneers for these little tells even her accent people people joke who have heard her real accent that it sounds fake and there's a, a moment in the show where the actress doing her accent is is doing the anna delvey voice it's not German, it's not Russian, it's just vaguely exotic, and it's a mixture of both. And it turns out in real life, that was actually a choice by Anna, that she wanted to sound exotic and not just strictly Russian peasant. So, like, even the tiny things that, you know, somebody from an upper class should have been wary about, she found a way to, like mask it or make it exotic instead of letting it sit there and be a tell how much another thing too when you're of a higher class you're taught from a very young age to ask a lot of questions to question everything question things from police officers from school teachers also the way you talk you talk nice and slow what you have to say is important when you're an elite so you talk so so you notice the kids will even do that too they'll just they choose their words and they talk slowly yeah, Malcolm Gladwell covered that study about like how people from an upper class would actually ask their doctor questions, whereas people from a lower class were taught to just listen to the authority. And it's the difference between saying thank you for a meal and thank you so much for a meal. We are sheep in the lower class. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want any trouble. I I would disagree with you, but when you said let's do a podcast, I just followed you into the studio, honestly. <laughs> My best sales job yet. (laughs) So, uh, okay. I had a question. Speaking of uh, flipping or or changing class places, um, did did you notice that they took the original journalist, Presler, they took her out of her own story and they replaced her with a fictional character? I did because I read the, the articles you sent me <laughs> doing my homework. I didn't know that at the time, and I watched and I binge watched the show. Love the show, love the story. Um, 
It's weird that they did that. And I, and I want to start talk about this. So Netflix says in the beginning of each episode of this, and if you watch it, you, you can't miss this. This They put it in print on the on the rolling scroll when the story starts. So the whole story is completely true, except for all the parts that are totally made up. Right. Which pisses me off. Because I always like documentaries to think, you know, this is what happened. You know, I like to live in, it was really that fun and this beautiful. And, and real life is never that blingy. Right. Or the the plot twists aren't so clean. But I don't understand why not just do the story, the story, the story on the reporter one. She's the one that did the movie, the reporter. Right. So she wrote this article, got a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of press. Probably not a whole lot of money. She's on salary. But it led to this Netflix deal. And she's, in the in the show, they paint her as sort of a disgraced reporter. Mm-hmm. Like she had fallen for uh, a teenager who had, you know, claimed to make millions in the stock market. She hadn't done her due diligence and embarrassed herself permanently. She had ruined her career on, on one bad right. mistake. That That's actually true like in the show she she really the real presler went through that she really was pregnant at the time she was writing the article she really did go to the prison honestly it hits so many of the same beats as what happened in real life i don't understand why they replaced you know her with this fake vivian character she was pregnant when she wrote the movie she wasn't pregnant when she did this oh okay she said that she, what I don't understand is I found her to be very annoying. And I wouldn't understand why if you're writing this movie about something that you did, that you saw, that no one else saw, why you wouldn't want to take full credit for it to be the star right. actress. <laughs> why wouldn't you want to base it on you? Maybe, maybe Presler doesn't need that kind of press. Maybe, I mean, she wrote, um, in case you're unaware of um, Presler as a journalist, she also wrote um, Hustle about the strippers who ran a con circle and, you know, took money from wealthy men on Wall Street. So, like, she is a legit bona fide journalist. Maybe she didn't want to, like, be associated with this character forever. Isn't it kind of interesting to get this kind of wealth and rich as a writer off of somebody else's story? Yeah. This isn't Harry Potter. She followed this. She got in early. And signed out. I think that's kind of neat. It's an opportunist. I think she has a gift at spotting people who will um, attract the American mind. Like if you look at Anna Delvey and Hustlers and some of her other subjects, they are women who are trying to take advantage of people that do have money, but they're coming up from nothing to do it. So like that is a such a compelling narrative structure and this journalist seems to be catching that. Like like she's out with her butterfly net, specifically catching that type of story. And that's that's what a good journalist does. Like, um, you know, we talk a lot about Gladwell. He went after a very specific type of science narrative. So if you know what you're after as far as a storyteller, I mean, you can go catch it if you can. Now, we're talking about this like all journalist stories are correct, actual and factual. And they're really not, <laughs> right? There's always going to be something they miss, some inconsistency. Or their interpretation of it. Or sometimes they just report things that they know are false. Right. But that's, that's what we do. Ratings. <laughs> <laughs> every, every Wednesday. <laughs> Don't you think that she should have made her... her um, you watch the show, right? Yeah. Don't you think she should have made her character more likable? Oh, Vivian? Yeah. I thought she was a total bitch. I, she was, but I, I viewed it more in a scrappy, you know, get what you need, you know, um, push people who need to be pushed kind of way. Like I, I, they were telling two or three stories at the same time in that show. And they were all, they all had the same thematic note, which is here's a journalist, here's a lawyer, here's Anna Delvey. They're all on this upward trajectory. Like they're all on this arc. And they are all going from the bottom to the top. Vivian is going to, you know, uh, what do the the real journalists call her? An all caps version uh, or an all caps email of her Angry real self. Angry version. Yeah. yeah. Angry <laughs> version. All caps version. 
Because that's what she was. She's always yelling and screaming about everything. Torturing her poor husband, you know. Yeah. Giving motherhood third place on her list of things to do. Right, exactly. But the the lawyer has the exact same journey. Like, if you watch the show, you know, the lawyer has that breakdown when he's talking with Anna Delvey and starts screaming that, you know, his fate, his job is tied to, you know, this case and whether it's Anna's going to be found guilty or not. So they, they all kind of have the same, whether it's real or not, they're all painted as having the same upward journey. Great acting. Great cast. I... I want to kind of like it's going to be weird having two older guys fan out or or, or you know um, fawn over a couple of actors, but I can't believe the girl from Ozark is Anna Delvey in this, and I can't believe how much she blended into that role. Really, yeah, it didn't seem like she was an actress. It seemed like that was her. The accent was fun to listen to, um, and then her just her attitude, her confidence, her intelligence. She's bragging about how many languages she speaks, how many different countries she's been in. I mean, and how she defended herself. Just real passionate acting. Right. <laughs> did you did you get to the part in the show where, or no, sorry, did you get to the part of the articles where they were talking about seeing Anna Delvey talk to the actress who plays her and seeing them do the accent at each other? No, I never saw that. <laughs> There's this um, humorous anecdote that Pressler writes about where um, uh, the real Anna Delvey meets this actress who's playing her. And uh, the actress, people are starting to like, they're questioning whether or not she can play it. And they're like wondering, you know, what's this weird accent? And then they hear her visiting with Anna Delvey at like the court or the jail or something. And they're doing the accent back and forth at each other. And it's like, oh, no, she got it. Like that is it's it's like listening to it's seeing a mirror and listening to the same sounds come out. Now, since you're not going to bring it up because you're embarrassed to, I want to talk about this fictional castaway place they have at this newspaper. If you're no longer a great writer anymore, what do they send you? They send you to Scriberia. (laughs) It's got to resonate with you as a writer. I love that word so much, Scriberia. Um, I'll I'll simply say that the um, the guy that writes for Freakonomics, he met Scriberia. Uh, he doesn't refer to it as Scriberia, but he talks about how um, before founding Freakonomics, he he worked for a couple of large magazines and newspapers. He was a journalist, and he said the reason he quit journalism is he ran into the um the journalist the scribes who had stuck around more than 20 years they were protected by the union they could not be fired and so they were sent to like their writer's hole where they just put out you know puff pieces and and nonsense until they retired and he he said that you know he he met scriberia and he he it led him away from journalism he's like oh you know you just have to hang in for a ridiculous amount of time and then you become one of these scribes i think it's interesting you know in the olden days right the 60s 70s there'd be this big floor of people smoking cigarettes drinking coffee calling the police department calling leads hey this is joe (laughs) right it'd be hard to work under that people talking loud on the phone slamming it swearing just as chaos how can you focus they say because of covid it cleaned the offices out but there wasn't this area that they take everybody who's a leper and puts them over there. It must have sound like a call center. Exactly. And so it makes sense in your career. If you're hot as a writer and you write some really good stuff, you get a bigger desk or a better window or whatever. But there's a lot of energy. They, there is no leper section. Right. <laughs> this was made up to, to do the bootstrap. This was our last chance. I, I and then think you got the was, other misfit writer people, drive writers there who are also on their way out the door to help, right? <laughs> the bad news bears of of uh, the magazine, right? I, I love the um, in these articles uh, they talked about meeting the real Scriberia, like they went to the the office and they called in all these journalists and they were saying that you know it is kind of a a resting place for over-the-hill writers who just kind of want to coast 
but also they were saying that like you know there's a couple of like really award-winning journalists sitting there also in scriberia <laughs> who are just killing time but you know they had it in them to write you know wild stuff like the santa delvey so i also i really do want to get into what the show does right and where it kind of falls short um now the reason why we we are going to keep this section as a a smaller piece of the podcast because we really aren't a review podcast we don't usually do movies um lots of documentaries right yeah we we cover real documentaries but not even like i don't know if we've done a docudrama like this so rotten tomatoes has about 60 percent for critics but it's way way lower for audiences Audiences put it at about, it's 33% right now. So why do you think audiences aren't attracted to the show? I don't know. I think it's got the con artist thing. It's got New York, Soho, trips to Morocco, jet planes. I love it. A little bit of catch me if you can vibe to it. Yeah. They do a hell of a job with attention in it. That's what I notice is, you know, I've been studying storytelling with Joe and they build tension up and this is not life or death. This is not the the cars driving off the cliff, but just a credit card getting turned down and you can start to feel your heart start to pound. And to me, that's great suspense. That is a really good point. The, the, the whole show really, like if you sum up the energy of the show, it's like having a credit card get turned down. <laughs> Like that is the energy. Um, I think that Anna's arrogance, especially in the opening narrative, might turn some people away because she's not a likable character. She was never intended to be. And less likely, less likable in real life. Yeah. But yeah, she was an absolute jerk. Yeah. And that's when we talk about the, you know, the, the perfect bird song to attract birds. Anna's jerkness was the perfect bird song to attract wealthy people. It gave her sort of a sense of importance. And she's an attractive woman. But I, when I when I first heard the story and read the story, even before the show, I thought I thought she'd be really good looking to be able to pull this off, like model gorgeous to t- pull this off. And then I thought, well, maybe billionaires don't look that way. So that's how she fit in, <laughs> right. was by looking very average. Yeah, she she just looked averaged and well dressed, like you said. You know, the, the the pressed, sparkly sharpness that that comes with that kind of wealth. Um, and you're right. The something I want to point out with the tension, the the first episode or two is where I really got hooked, because it takes you through the story of this journalist, and the whole first episode is the journalist describing the stakes. Like, what is at stake here? Her reputation is at stake. Um, being rejected by her uh, manager, telling her to drop the story. It makes us want to hear more. And when it finally teases us where Anna is like, you know, they, they meet Anna and still we don't get the story. Still we don't get the, the reveal. And that's not a new plot. The journalist who's told by their boss to drop the story. Right, exactly. That's about as old as it gets. That's about like the police chief telling him, one more, <laughs> and you're going to be writing parking tickets. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so I think that the beginning of the show and the end of the show are the strongest parts, the bookends. Um, there's there's an, as a, a part in episode two where they've got this fashion designer explaining Anna's big trick, how she worked in society. Listening to all the characters talk about Anna before you really get the story from Anna's mouth or perspective, it reminded me a bit of Great Gatsby. When The Great Mm. Gatsby opens, all these people at the party are talking about Gatsby, but you don't meet him yet. And I think that was a really good way to build it up. It showed sort of a smart progression, and it built up this lore about Anna, how smart she is, you know, how, how successful she is, how tricky she is. My bigger complaint is when you actually get Anna's perspective it almost feels like a letdown after all that build up and that happens you know mid episodes and and farther and a lot of Anna's con artist tricks and this is con artist 101 is to have 
other people talking about you and you just say absolutely nothing. Yeah. To be seen and talked about is, is not, you're not getting on stage and putting on a pitch. It's almost the opposite. She was being aloof. She was being a jerk to, that's part of the whole image. Right. And we've talked about that aloofness and reserving yourself is attractive. Like it, it makes people curious. Um, now, when when you were watching the show, who did you feel like Anna actually hurt? Because there's a lot of scenes where it shows the wealthy people she scammed, the people who she charged their credit card, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or she overstayed on like a yacht and, and cost them, you know. $100,000 for an extra week of, of staying on a yacht. That's what it costs to cap and fuel feed (laughs) right but it it felt like most of these wealthy people were connected enough i mean they even have a scene where you know the woman who had anna go shopping on her dime and racked up a ton of money at the most fashionable places in manhattan she even says oh no i have connections i have friends all of the money was refunded back to me so who did she who did she actually hurt because that does come up I don't think she hurt anybody. And, and on that one that you're talking about where she's just swiped this woman's American Express card, she put $400,000 on it. And this woman being who she was, was friends with the CEO of a, a American Express <laughs> and wouldn't hear of her having to pay those charges. The same way you Chase or, or Bank of America would waive a $35 uh, bank fee for us. They raised four hundred thousand dollars of debt, so that that's a sign of a different social class, right? What do you do when someone does that? You send them a thank you card or something, right? And she had fur coats forgiven, whereas like you know that could save three people's houses if it was you know the lower class. Um, I think she hurt a lot of people's feelings. I think she talked down to a lot of people. I think she bullied a lot of people. I think the people that really had the stress were the people who worked at these hotels the managers and the people that worked in the restaurants who were responsible for these $10,000, $20,000, $100,000 hotel bills that they didn't do their due diligence. And now they were going to her. And can you imagine they probably lost sleep and probably some of them lost their job. I'm sure there was a lot more fallout from this than they put on the show. I think so. Yeah. I also think the, the way she hurt these people's feelings, the, there's there's so many mentions of like wealthy people who did not come forward to report her that's how her scam basically worked is a lot of these people didn't want to go to the cops they didn't want to you know report her her basically scamming people because they felt foolish for having fallen for it secretly all of these wealthy people feared they weren't deserving of what they had so when Anna walked out with, you know, $400,000 and Alexander Wang, they would just sort of quietly recoup their losses because they maybe didn't, you know, they don't want to go to the police. I think because of our, you know, our financial situation, whatever it is, we can't understand somebody not freaking out over losing a million dollars. They're that's nothing to them. <laughs> it's right. Their reputation and looking stupid in the front of their friends is worth way more than that to them. So right. they could just and I could get it with these um these attorneys that got involved and these um people who are raising money, all these different professionals, that's bad for their business. That they're gonna be seen as someone who got conned by some kid. Right. <laughs> so I can see them just saying, keep the money. Because they wanted to settle this out of court. They didn't want to go to court because they didn't want to embarrass themselves. And Anna said, no, I want the attention. I want the press. I want to be famous. Because that's more important to her than going to jail. She's got no more social capital to lose. So why not go for the notoriety? And all these people who she scammed, that is really what they lost in the end. They were losing social capital. Maybe that's the real genius. Like maybe that's the aloofness, the the technical details of what she did, her speaking all those languages, her tricking people, working at a fashion magazine. 
so she knew about how to appear, how to dress, how to walk, how to move. Maybe all of that was the easy part. Maybe convincing people not to turn her in to preserve their social capital. Maybe that's the real genius move. One thing that they missed in the show that kind of bothered me because I could see it from the first time we started following the story, even when I read it before we did our first episode. There was a part at the end, if you remember this, where she went away to rehab, where she may have tried to commit suicide or didn't, and they said that she had a drinking problem and went to. She was an obvious drinker, drugger. And she, I think that would have been a lot better part of the story if they put in all their addiction yeah. and the party side of that crowd, too. I think so. I think they left a lot of personality on the table that they did not cover because they wanted to make the whole thing the Great Gatsby effect. They wanted to keep that going. Where in reality, stories work best when you eventually reveal, you know, the 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 personality that's doing it. They show us what Anna's childhood looked like and where she came from. But they never really got to the personality, the you know, the the caricature that is doing this. She was flat broke, on the run, um, bank credit cards gone, no money to steal. She checked herself into an eighty thousand dollar a month rehab facility. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she didn't just go to the boys and girls club here. Eighty grand a month, scamming people even when she is going quote unquote you know clean which is impressive i can't go clean unless i'm scamming somebody um do you remember uh our episode about celebrity insulation and the idea that the more wealth we get the more inclined we are to buffer ourselves to you know um to not just insulate but also to justify our our good fortunes Oh, yeah. Let's change our narrative as we go. Right. We had that famous uh, Paul Piff study that we talked about in the, the Monopoly studies where people would get extra cash and extra dice rolls and, and extra everything. And that when they won the game in the study, um, they would blame their own uh, you know, the cleverness. They would justify, not that they started out with more, but the longer they played, the more they started like coming up with reasons why, you know, they had they had done well, that they had made the right choices, things like that. Well, then you got our one of our favorite presidents, FDR, who was a terrible student and, and somehow got a uh, got into Harvard with no problems and what never went to class, never took a test, and graduated with gentleman grades. Right. And he never apologized for it. He said, oh, you know, he did. He said, I went to Harvard and graduated. That was it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This watching. I mean, he was busy dragging the country out of the Great Depression and fighting World War II. But besides that, unapologetic for his education. Right. Yeah, I, I guess that's the ultimate message I was looking for in the show is I, is I wanted to see. I mean, they call out classism so many times in the show without exploring it or getting to the Paul Piff thing, like like t- talking about how these people's narratives, the, the, what they were telling themselves had affected their wealth. I guess the inner workings of how Anna's trick went. It's like showing somebody a magic trick, telling them that it was a trick. Like you, 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 stay, you say it from the very start. This is a trick. It's not real magic. Uh, I'm going to make these, you know, bouquet of flowers appear, but you never actually show them like you never reveal the trick itself. That's kind of what the show felt like to me. And I think that's why it is sitting at 33%. Now I want to tell you about my, what I took out of this. And I spent 10 hours of my life watching that show (laughs) (laughs) and about 10 hours studying for this podcast. But I took something away from it. I have a personal takeaway. And this was a, a quote in the movie. And this is from Anna Delvey. She says, or Anna Sorsen, in her muddled Russian-German accent, if I can learn everything, I can have everything. In the eighth episode of Venting Anna, Vivian, our fictional journalist, is complaining to her husband about the 
and a buzz on TV. News anchors, influencers, and commentators are chiming in about Anna, making jokes. But we got a sense of how shallow their comments are. They're missing the bigger picture. Specifically, they're missing what Anna and her scam revealed about the elite class in America. Vivian says to her husband, quote, Anna Delby's not a take. She's not a mean. Vivian's husband looks confused. His wife has worked herself to the bone for the story. Her water broke while she was writing it. He asks, so what's the real story? Vivian responds, something about class, social mobility, identity under capitalism. I don't know. The show creators seem to be calling out their own blind spots, or they're admitting that they left behind the central message. Because the bulk of the runtime isn't about class, social mobility, or identity under capitalism. Instead, the lens focuses more on the female oppression in the workplace with montages of Anna's genius sprinkled in. It seems to avoid looking too closely at the cultural impact. Or as Vox Magazine put it, inventing Anna is a lazy girl boss revenge fantasy. Netflix and Shonda put out a show that's all handbags and designer dresses built over a scaffolding of real life events. They introduced a cast of characters obsessed with Anna, but they don't make us obsessed with Anna. They took a young woman who found a hack into the American upper class soul and they perverted it to a rags of riches story. Inventing Anna comes off as a docudrama with lots of class, but they forgot the classism. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com. That's where you can find our show notes, our research links, and you can give us feedback for our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.